Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. How you doing? How do we fall into that like introductory thing that we always do? I don't know, but it's probably good to maintain some form of you know maintain some form of consistency, right? Sure. People know what to expect. Sure. They look forward to hearing our haze. Our hey. <laughs> hey hey. I just spent the afternoon outside in a hammock reading. Yeah, for this grant, it's like ninety some degrees here. I spent the last three days outside in 90-some degrees cutting down brush and burning it in my backyard. Ooh. See, I also weeded and cut down brush and pulled out, like, errant saplings that should not be growing. Yep. But I am not allowed to burn such things in my backyard in this neighborhood, so I don't really know what to do with it. I'm probably not. It's probably partly responsible for this froggy-sounding voice both the allergens and then sitting you know i like i don't like have brush fires i I should say i'm not doing that i'm collecting cutting the wood making nice piles so in our fire pit we have plenty of material yeah and so i was using the fire pit but yeah 90 degrees sitting around a fire pit looks a little odd (laughs) <laughs> it's it's because you can't use the sauna at the gym. You're just gonna make your own. <laughs> it's true, but I do still Smoke find it. Com- I do find it comforting. Um, I think I told you last week about reading the destruction of Black Civilization. This week I read the most amazing, all-encompassing coverage of the last ten years, more the last four years by Rachel Maddow. Her book Blowout. Have you read ah. this? I have not. Oh my God, what a great book. Good. So she just had a, a lawsuit tossed out. Some conservative news media sued her for libel. Oh, wait. No doubt. Which one's libel? Wait, is libel written? Yes. Slander is spoken, libel is written, so slander. Correct. Uh, <laughs> no, it's such a, uh, but apparently it just got thrown out. But interestingly, and the judge said that's because Rachel Maddow's show is an opinion show and not a news show. And so there's a whole bunch of like, you know, weird back and forth about her not being real news. No. Well, given the systematic evisceration of the oil and gas industry in her book, I am <laughs> not surprised. Oh, and, that'll and, be libel then. And, <laughs> and her, her, well, yeah, I mean, she's gonna, there are going to be a lot of powerful, powerful people uh, who, who want to take her down. And I, I don't know when the book came out. I mean, it's talking through about events up through 2019. So I think her mm-hmm. book went to press last fall. But um, the, the culture created by the oil and gas industry and the influence it's had, um, and it goes all the way up through, like, why would Russia want to be involved in a, I, you know, I now yeah. understand perfectly hmm. why Russia would have cared about our elections. It explains everything. Well, that's amazing. And now I'd like it her to, like, write the next chapter, which brings us up to, like, why are people acting like such morons with regard to the pandemic? You know, not yeah. just because they're morons, but, like, what, poli- what policy choices are being made? Not only policy choices, but it's almost an ethos, you know, the societal right. ethos and, and the, the diverging ethos of masks are destroying our freedoms and things like that. Like, where does that come from? Right. Uh, it's fascinating. So this was a, like you read a full on book? Yeah, I listened to it on Audible, but yeah. Yeah, I need to start doing that more because 
with all the gardening and whatnot I am doing, yeah. I am finding I need more and more audio things to listen to. I, I love the immersiveness. And the day before, I listened to there's another there's a, a podcast called Winds of Change. That's a serial podcast that's related. It's mm-hmm. about the song Winds of Change by Scorpion, the Scor- Scorpions, which yeah. was the most listened to rock song, most transformative rock song of all time because it coincided with the Berlin Wall coming down and oh. it became a massive, massive hit. Yeah. And supposedly it was written by the CIA and fed to the Scorpions. Wait, wait is, so is that true? Well, that's what this whole podcast is about. And it's so between the two books... And I'll tell you the third one that I listened to this weekend. Forget the name of it, but it's Ronan Farrow's book. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Harvey Weinstein. What's his name? Yeah. And I listened to a pod, uh, Crooked Media podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very familiar with John Lovett. Yeah. And I, I've heard him talking about his partner, Ronan, and uh, the book that he made him read in a day and how he was proposed to in the book, Pages. But I never put together that Ronan Farrow was Mia Farrow and Woody Allen's son. Mm-hmm. That that this was the same person who was Lovett's partner, and that they broke this story and the story of the Today Show guy, and all of these NBC people were all taken down by this one accumulating story. That's amazing. Anyway, we should probably actually talk about who we're bringing on the show. So we are talking today to Assistant Professor of Psychology, Athena Actipis and Lee Kronk. Athena is at Arizona State. Lee is at Rutgers. And they are co-PIs of the Human Generosity Project. They're exciting for so many different ways. So many. Lee was my advisor for all of a month when I was at Rutgers. So he's really... One of the main people to turn me on to some of the theoretical interests I have had for the past decade. And I am a huge, uh, increasingly big fan of Dina's zombified podcast about science because we share so many uh, sort of, we have so many shared interests uh, in human biology and evolutionary theory and then psychology for their side that this will be a weird thing and I'm going to try to control it during our interview. I'm a huge like Athena fangirl. I came across her 2015 uh, and she wrote this big review paper about cancer across life forms and it is it is this you know it's a big paper it's quite long but it's just this gorgeous review paper with really wonderfully visual models that talks about how like all cancer shares a certain number of characteristics and you can see this from like unicellular life all the way up to you know humans and elephants and everything else and I assign it to my students when we talk about evolutionary medicine and looking at these different relationships across life forms and what that could mean for for treatment of cancer among humans Um, and then when I saw she had a book out I freaked and I'm so excited and she and I have conversed about SciComm because she also runs a SciComm seminar for grad students Mm. Uh, and she shared shared the syllabus with me and she seems to do all the things and I don't know how that's possible I know hence my joke that they about the sleeping part or or about the having fun part in in our questions and I retweeted it today she was in on a Baba Brinkman rap and video about cancer. You should definitely go to my Twitter feed and you will see it. It's amazing. Right. Shall we bring them on? We should. Connecting. Connecting. <laughs> Hello. We've got one. Hello, Athena. 
How are you guys? We are good. How are you? I'm doing good. Hello, Lee. Hey, how you doing? So welcome so to you both, Athena and Lee. Thanks so much for having us. I'm really happy to be here. Also, Athena, what is Lee, that amazing Kara. painting on your wall? Oh, um, this is a, a painting of a bull. I got it when I was in Berlin for the year. It's like my my memory from Berlin. So it's pretty great. We always love seeing different backgrounds, and especially these days, we get to see everyone's home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, which is great. Yep. So why don't we just start off the way we always start off? Obviously, our sausage of science is a pun on how the sausage is made or how the science is made. But we want to start off by knowing how the scientists also have come together. And so why don't you guys each tell us a bit about your backgrounds and how you came to be in your respective disciplines before we jump into the project that you are involved with together. Uh, so let me think, how did I become an anthropologist? I, it's a weird thing. I went to high school, like everybody. We had a required writing class, and one of the, the term paper at the end of the semester was a term paper about an imaginary career, some career you might want to have in the future. And for some reason, I picked anthropologist. I don't know why. And I, I don't know where that came from. Could have been, I had a friend, this was in Columbus, Ohio, so there's a lot of Ohio State professors in my circle. And I had a friend whose dad was in the anthropology department at Ohio State. Maybe that's how I got into it. And I did a lot of reading, so I had read a lot of anthropology and related stuff. Uh, but then I went to college and I was an anthropology major. I didn't think I would be um, an anthropologist. Um, I just thought of it as a good undergraduate major. I actually thought about going into playwriting, of all things. Huh. But I burned out on that pretty quickly. And then I, uh, the fateful thing for me was uh, when I was 20 years old, I took a trip to Kenya as part of a field school that a couple of geography professors, at, this was at Northwestern, had organized. And uh, that included uh, some a few days of homestays with a group of people in northern Kenya called the Samburu, and another homestay with another bunch of people called the Kamba. And that experience of actually living in people's houses and hanging out with them and learning a bit of some language and so on made it seem like a real thing that you could be an anthropologist. Before that, it just didn't it seemed like something other people did. But that made it seem real and, and sort of gave me a focus and a direction. And the trip was also fateful in that I met my wife on it. Oh. Um, and so I got a, a research topic of source eventually. When, years later, when I, I needed to pick a field site, I thought, thought about Kenya. And uh, she came with me and so on and so forth. So that's how I kind of decided I was going to be an anthropologist. Well, the, the anthropology has been good to you. Yeah, it has yeah. been. <laughs> I always find it fascinating when people say they heard about anthropology in high school. And I know, Chris, mm. your kids are definitely an exception to that. But I had no clue what anthropology was probably until like maybe even my second or third year of college when I came across it. So I find these stories fascinating. So Athena, you're not really an anthropologist so much. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, you're but a psychologist. It, a psychologist, but it just, you know, the lines between anthropology and psychology are quite blurry. So what's at your least, story? At least here. Yeah, well, I think of myself as a cooperation theorist as opposed oh. to like a psychologist or any, you know, particular label in traditional disciplines because I really utilize, you know, psychology, anthropology, computer science, evolutionary theory, and kind of bring all those things together to try to understand cooperation. And, you know, now I also work on cancer biology. So, so yeah, the, for me, the 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 label that fits best is cooperation theorist. So, but I have studied a lot of different disciplines. I almost ended up majoring in anthropology in college, hmm. but I had a, a meeting with a person who was supposed to be my advisor my freshman year. And I walked into the office and explained how excited I was about, you know, studying 
human cooperation and social behavior from a multidisciplinary perspective, but I thought anthropology was the right place for me to be. And then to also study psychology and evolutionary biology and bring it all together. And she did not like that idea at all. She thought it was a very bad idea to use science if you're going to study humans. And I basically left that room completely dazed because this was, you know, my, this was the first week of my freshman year. I I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Um, So I I was kind of like wandering the hallways in a daze and there's another professor. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, I I don't know. She's like, come (laughs) into my office. (laughs) turns out she studies economics and behavior Mm. and environmental economics and human behavior. And um, she was, she ended up being my advisor for a long time too. So I I have, you know, a lot of different disciplines that I, that I draw from. I ended up majoring in psychology largely because I was able to do the most interdisciplinary Mm. um, study within psychology because of the way the requirements were structured. Where was this at, Athena? This was at Reed College in okay. Portland. And then I, I did a postdoc, I'm sorry, then I did my PhD in psychology and then a postdoc in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, and it was then that I started working on cancer biology as well. Mm. And so, um, so yeah, I, I don't really fit neatly in any one discipline. Well, uh, I'll, I don't know if Leah remembers this, but I, I told Kara right before I got on, I was briefly a Lee student for, for a month. And, of course I remember it. Yes. Well, I, 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 know, I know you would remember that part, but I, I don't know if you'd remember what advice you gave me when I, I moved on. And the reason I moved on was not because we had any issues, but I wasn't funded. I was there for a, P, a Rutgers for a PhD on my own dime. And everybody was like, are you effing crazy? <laughs> um, but I, I left, I ended up at, SUNY Albany and somewhere along the way I went to work with Gordon Gallup in an evolutionary psychology lab and, and Lee had said just get your degree with funding and then you get a job and you can study what you want. The moral of the story has been yeah I, I always say I like to study anthropology because it, it it encompasses absolutely anything remotely to do with humans which is basically anything mm-hmm. um, but I, I think the same is true of a lot of any any disciplines once you learn the skill set to learn the skill set is how to learn things. You can you can then apply it everywhere or or to whatever. You can pick up more skills along the way. So thank you for that advice, Lee. It sure. served me well. <laughs> You're welcome. And and we've seen this across multiple interviews of, of people not fitting neatly into boxes because there is this conception that what we study should fit into boxes. And I think the perfect example of something that is very outside the box is this human generosity project that you were both part of. So I'm not sure who wants to start this, but First, just kind of tell us what the Human Generosity Project is and actually how it came together, because it does seem like there are a lot of different moving pieces from people across a lot of different disciplines. Right. Yeah, well, one of the pieces of the origin story for the Human Generosity Project is that I had finished my PhD, or I was finishing my PhD and looking for a postdoc. And so I basically started just emailing, you know, anybody who did work that I thought was interesting on the topic that I wanted to study, who I had had some contact with, basically saying, I'm looking for a postdoc. Um, Does anybody have any funding? Can I apply for a postdoc? So Lee was one of the people I emailed and he emailed me back and he said, I don't have any money for a postdoc, but I have an idea for a research project. Do you want to 
talk about doing a model together. So Chris, somewhat similar to your story with Lee, it's like, <laughs> there's no money, but it's an <laughs> exciting opportunity. So. That's the theme of my career. No <laughs> <laughs> but to make a long story short, um, Lee and I started collaborating together on this model of Osotois, the need-based sharing system that the Maasai have, where basically individuals ask for help if they're in need, and then they help each other if they're asked and they're able. So very, very simple rule. And, you know, basically when Lee told me about this, I'm like, yeah, this is super easy. I can code this in a, you know, a day or two, and then we can look at the results. And so um, I started working on um, coding the model and Lee and one of his graduate students at the time started working on um, making sure that we could parameterize it based on what we knew about the ecology of East Africa. And so I think we, we worked on it one day a month for like a year. We like got together in the same place and worked on it. And of course we worked on it a little bit when we weren't in the same place, but basically, you know, did this paper and I don't know about you, Lee, but it was the easiest experience I've ever had mm -hmm. trying to get a paper published. Very easy. The reviewers loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which yeah. for me, it was a totally new experience. Yeah. I never <laughs> had that before. I, I don't um, trust it when it's easy anymore because yeah. I've been beat up so much. Well. Did you guys read it? <laughs> Just skim the abstract. And Can you give me some feedback so I feel like this is a decent paper? <laughs> yeah. So it really, it started with this first paper and then I think it was during the course of working on that paper together, writing that paper and realizing, you know, yes, this is a very simple rule. Yes. In some, on some level, it's very common sense, right? You only ask for help if you're in need and you give, if you're asked and if you're able, you don't give so much, you go below what you need. Even though it's so simple, it's at the same time, extremely profound and very different from models of reciprocity that had really dominated thinking about cooperation among non-relatives, non-genetic relatives. So it really, for, at least for me, it started percolating through and I, and you know, I think it took us quite a while to be able to clearly articulate how uh, it really was a very different model from the standard reciprocal altruism model. And, you know, through that process, we developed more models where we were able to actually test the need-based giving versus debt-based giving, which is much more similar to a tit-for-tat kind of approach, um, and, and start showing how the, these need-based systems work relative to debt-based systems, and then also how they work in relation to different kinds of environments that um, might have you know, different features in terms of volatility, um, also on different kinds of networks. So, so all of those things. So that modeling side really, um, I think, was where it, where it started in terms of our collaboration. But of course, long before I did any of the modeling, Lee was there in the field doing the primary research. And Lee, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm always kind of um, struck by the, the story that you told me about how when you first went to the field, you thought that Osotois was reciprocity. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know. I mean, I, I, the, the literature on it, even now is not very voluminous, but uh, before we started writing about it, there was really almost nothing. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, yeah, I was under the impression that I knew it was a gift-giving system. Um, I thought it was a, sort of a reciprocal tit-for-tat sort of a gift-giving system, kind of like the Sharo system among the Kung, say, something like that. 
Um, but I, I, I realize now I understand, I didn't fully understand the Sharo system even. I understand it much better now. We can talk about the Sharo system more if you want to want me to flesh that out. But anyway. Well, it, I mean, just to give context for listeners for whom none of this means anything. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem yeah. with anthropological stuff. It's often very obscure. So yeah. could, yeah. What, do you, what do you mean by these systems? Just okay. So um, Sharo, I'll start with Sharo because it's sort of a classic system that's studied mainly by Polly Wiesner. Uh, who's actually on our board of scientific advisors now. And she documented a system among the Kung or Juntuansi, sometimes also called Bushmen in in Southwestern Africa, Namibia, Botswana, that they call Sharo. It's spelled H-X-A-R-O. And it's a system where you you develop partnerships with people across the landscape. And through your life, you maintain them by giving them small gifts. And that the gifts are typically things that are small and not of any serious economic value. And the reason you give them is to maintain the relationship. And the reason you maintain the relationship is because if things get really, truly bad for you, say you're out of food or you're out of water, then you have people across the landscape who are not in the same boat because they're living someplace else. And you can call upon them for help. You got to walk to where they are, but you you can call upon them for help. So you're maintaining a network, sort of almost literally a safety net, you know, across the landscape of people you can call upon and they can call upon you too. So you maintain those things. The, the Osotwa system, so Osotwa is a Maasai system. The Maasai are pastoralists in East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania. I study them in Kenya. Um, and so they keep livestock, mainly cows. And Osotwa literally means umbilical cord. It's the human umbilical mm-hmm. cord. And so as you're growing up, you develop relationships with people. And then as you're an adult, you sort of solidify them as your Osotwa partners, your umbilical cord friends. And they aren't necessarily people that you're, you're chummy with. Uh, there's another word for uh, a buddy, a pal, a friend in that sense, uh, called Ochore. Different concept. They may overlap, but they don't have to. Your Osotwa partners are the people that you can go to when you're in need. And they can go to you when you're when they're in need. Unlike the Sharo system, you don't have to maintain them with small gifts. You do that at the beginning to sort of get the ball rolling. We call those bond-based transfers because it's all about establishing and maintaining a bond. Uh, but in, in the Maasai system, once you've got the relationship established, you've agreed, you have an Osotra relationship, it's kind of like a marriage. Hmm. Um, and and they're actually, the courtship, there's sort of a courtship process that people go through to decide whether they want to go to take this big step of, of establishing an Osotra partnership, because it's a very, very big responsibility. They don't, uh, they don't treat it uh, casually. If you're, if you're somebody who's Osotra partner, then that's a, a big responsibility because you are, you have their back. You're there for them if they get in trouble. And in a pastoralist system, people often do get in trouble because livestock die due to diseases. They die due to droughts. They get stolen. Uh, lots of bad things can happen very quickly in a pastoralist ecosystem. So that's where the Osotwa stuff comes from. So is this different from reciprocity and its formalization or? Yeah. So the, it depends on what, so the word reciprocity means a lot of different things to different people. For that reason, we've started not using it very much. And we've started using terms like need-based transfer and debt-based transfer and bond-based transfer so that we can be more precise in terms of what we mean. Gotcha. Because if you just say reciprocity, some people think ah generalized reciprocity. Some people right. think balanced reciprocity. Some people think indirect reciprocity. Um, and a variety of others. I think there's about 40 different types of reciprocity out there now. Hmm. Some of them have been have been reinvented multiple times with different names, the same names. It's quite a lot out there. Quite a sort of menagerie of reciprocity types. Um, so if you if by reciprocity you mean a back and forth, right? That's the sort of traditional meaning in my mind anyway. Then Osotwa is not reciprocity in that sense because there doesn't have to be any balance. Um, if somebody is consistently needy year after year just because they're unlucky, and so the flow of goods of cattle, say, is all towards them, 
and they're not giving anything back, that's totally okay. That you don't have to, you don't, there's no balance expected. Hmm. There is a, a mutual or reciprocal obligation to help the other party when they're in need, hmm. but the flow of stuff doesn't have to be balanced. Hmm. Lee, I think the story of like how you discovered that it wasn't reciprocity in terms of the experiment is hmm. a pretty okay. cool way of kind of getting this idea across because it's also like your discovery. Of yeah. This. Okay. I'll describe that. So uh, I, I, I waited to study Osatua because, you know, I, I work as a human behavioral ecologist and that means doing quantitative work at the same time that I'm an ethnographer and I do qualitative work. But my audience is kind of one that wants numbers, right? So I had been interested in Osatua, wanted to learn more about it for a long time, but I didn't uh, decide to actually study it until the experimental game method had been brought over into anthropology and became kind of established as a very popular method in in my, my area. And so I was there in 2005 and played a trust game. So a, a trust game, I picked it because it's a two-person game and there's a little bit of a back and forth element. So I thought that would be a good one. That's a well-established game in the literature. So what you do in a trust game, and typically it's played with two, two people anonymous to each other, you give them each um, an endowment of money. Usually in field settings, you give them the equivalent of one day's wage. So at my field site in 2005, that was 100 Kenyan shillings. And you give the, both people some money to, to make it so that neither one is thinking about fairness. It starts off fair. They both have some money. And then there's a, then they, you divide them into two groups, player one and player two. And player, the, the two players have very different roles. Player one uh, has to decide whether to give some, uh, none, or all of his 100 shillings to player two, somebody he can't see, somebody anonymous to him. On the stipulation that that amount that's given will be multiplied by the experimenter by a factor of three and then given to player two. And then player two has a pile of money, his initial 100 shillings plus whatever new, a new money he's got as a result of the transfer and the multiplication and can give any portion of that back to player one, including none of all. So is a, if those familiar with uh, experimental games from player two's point of view, it's, it's a dictator game. They, they can give money or not give money, and that's the end of the game. So I played uh, 25 games that were just unframed games as a control condition. And then 25 games where we, my assistant prefaced it by saying, this is an Osotra game in, in the local language in Masai. That framing had a pretty major impact on how people played the game, but in a different direction than I expected. So I expected, not really understanding Osotra, I'd done interviews about it. So I had some idea of what it was all about. But in my naivete about the system, I expected that the donations, player one to player two and vice versa, would go up because it's about giving and about generosity and all those good things. But exactly the opposite happened. The amounts they gave went down. And I was able to do that calculation while I was still in the field. And that led to a new set of questions. So I went back to the people I'd interviewed, asked them again, here's the results of the game. People gave less in the Osoto frame. Why was that? And they said, well, they, of course they gave less in the Osotra frame. You said it was Osotra. <laughs> Don't you get it? And so I asked more questions and I finally did get it that it's not about being generous. It's about being there for someone in need. And the only expression of need in the game really is whatever player one gives to player two. So interestingly, there was a relationship between how much player one gave and how much player two gave back, but it was negative such that if player one gives more of his pot, that's a signal to player two that player one is not needy. So player two gives less of his pot back. And vice versa, if player one gives a small portion of his pot, say 
10 shillings or 20 shillings, then that increases the proportion of player two's money that he gives back because that's could be interpreted as an expression of need. And apparently that's what they were doing, interpreting as expression of need um, within the Osutra framework. But in the unframed games, none of that was true. The, the framing of the game, calling it the Osutra game, really pretty radically changed the way they were approaching the gameplay. So in, in the unframed games, it was more of a tit-for-tat balanced reciprocity kind of thing. So how does this then extend to an interest in generosity, which is what your ah, project is So, yeah, so we were, um, it was about 2013 or so that we'd, we'd published uh, the, the original agent-based model that was, you know, based on the OSA system. And it, that inspired us to think about how this could be a big project. We, we, it has a lot of potential. And so we looked around for possible funders and we settled upon a, a private foundation called the John Templeton Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part because at the time, one of their buzzwords that they were interested in funding was generosity. And that also worked very well for us because a lot of people say they study altruism, but true altruism in the sense of something that's fitness damaging is pretty rare, but generosity is pretty common. You have a lot more to study if you're studying generosity. People are generous a lot of the time. And so generosity worked very well for us, worked well for the funding agency that we were applying to. So we hit upon calling our project the human generosity project. Um, and so how did you kind of build this team? Because it's a pretty right. extensive team. And if you wouldn't mind touching on the, you know, the different fields that are incorporated into right. this project. Right. I, I've been talking for a long time. So maybe if <laughs> you want to take this. Sure. Yeah. So the project really kind of, you know, has built up in a number of layers. So one of those is, you know, when we got the funding from Templeton, it really allowed us to hire a number of postdocs and fund graduate students um, and also fund some PIs at, who were collecting data at their own field site. So that was really kind of the, you know, the seed that allowed us to create what is now, uh, you know, quite a large, you know, network of, of collaborators. And, you know, as the project has progressed, we, you know, have had other graduate students come in to, you know, work with me, to work with Lee, who then many of them interested in these questions and had their own, you know, applied for their own funding or were, you know, otherwise able to, you know, work on the project. So it's it's kind of been a, a combination of, you know, the sort of big initial round of funding from Templeton and then some smaller grants and some institutional support that Lee and I also have from ASU and Rutgers that allows us to keep building our team. You know, we've had the pleasure of um, actually getting to start building some new field sites in the United States over the last hmm. few years. And now you know, we have additional funding going forward to actually study mutual aid in the United States, which is, which is exciting. And end with the fact that like now we're, we're actually looking at cooperation um, and interdependence and changes in that um, over the course of the pandemic, because that's something that we're, we're quite interested in. So yeah, so the project, you know, really kind of has these roots with Osotwa, but has expanded to, you know, include uh, probably about a dozen anthropologists, maybe more. Um, there are several people who graduate students in my lab and in other places where we're um, doing studies on human subjects to look at how they actually um, behave in situations where they have to make decisions about helping others in need. And then the computational modeling is, you know, continuing to be an important part of our work as well. And then that we also have a, a layer of our work, which is really about education and outreach. So um, we have an ongoing uh, collaboration with the Exploratorium Science Museum in San Francisco. Uh, Lee and I have both been 
scientific advisors for their set of exhibits about the science of sharing. And that's been really fun. We helped to, to develop a an exhibit there also about Osotois, which is soon going to start collecting data as well. So, uh, so yeah, we have a lot of different components of this project, but, uh, you know, ultimately I'll speak for myself here, but I just find it really fascinating and, and really fun to work on these questions and to be thinking about, Lee and I are always talking about and thinking about, well, you know, what's actually happening in the world where people are helping each other based on need. And, you know, yes, we can, you know, look at small scale societies and that's really the foundation for, for the project. But, um, you know, now that we have, I think, a, a pretty clear picture of just how widespread need-based transfers are in small-scale societies, the question of, you know, well, what does this mean for how humans help each other in, you know, modern environments? Um, what does it mean for the kinds of challenges that we face now and will be facing in the future? All of these questions really come into play. So, yeah, so for me, it's just, these are just questions I want to know the answers to and I want to study. And um, it's been really great to collaborate with with Lee on this because you know we bring different skill sets but um, we also you know we really share the evolutionary perspective and sort of the ability to use that as a as a framework and um, so I think it's uh, it's been a great collaboration yeah so I totally agree fantastic <laughs> collaboration going into this whole thing years ago I didn't know exactly what to expect but all along the way it's just it's worked really really well you, since you brought up the pandemic and COVID-19 and looking at how people may or may not be helping those in need, given cooperation is, is in cooperation theory is a big part of what you do, what are your thoughts about the American reactions and perhaps maybe even lack of cooperation in people just mask wearing, for example, of where you get this just, I will not wear a mask, I will not cooperate versus the camp that is like, yes, we will always be wearing. Any, anything you can opine on with that one? Do you want to talk about the data collection on COVID-19? Yeah, yeah, so we started collecting data um, the beginning of March before the pandemic was declared on people's perceived interdependence with humanity, with all of humanity and with neighbors, and also um, their willingness to cooperate and their endorsement of need-based transfer ideas. Um, so, so we've been able to follow them. We, we actually have eight time periods that we're about to post a preprint where we, we're looking at just the data from the first four time periods because it's taken us that long to wrap our heads around it. But you know, basically what we're seeing so far is that people are going up in their ratings of interdependence, um, not in every measure, but in most of the ones that we looked at. And when it comes to the cooperation measures, um, people have been going up for some and down for others. And so what's interesting to me, just as a first pass on it, is that we do see some signal of interdependence, people's perceived interdependence going up. And so, you know, it's not like, okay, there's just a breakdown of everything, right? Like there is some sense like we're, we're all in this together. But the, the fact that, you know, cooperation was not, um, like it went up by some measures and down by others, you know, suggests that this isn't, cooperation is not just one thing, right? It is this set of, you know, potential behaviors that people could do that might have positive impacts on those around them. They might be, you know, some might be costly, some might be less. Um, and, you know,
know, in a time like this, it, it may really be that just we have to think a little bit more subtly about what constitutes cooperation and, and not just what constitutes cooperation, but the, just the fact that it might be multifaceted in a way that um, I think that it's kind of easy to almost blow over when one is taking a, you know, evolutionary, theoretically motivated perspective. It's like, oh, cooperation is cooperation. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to it, um, it there, there may be many different dimensions to it that are affected differently by um, challenging situations. So this is a good, sounds like a good intersection, sort of backtrack a little bit to ask you about the computational modeling piece. So one of the questions when you first talked about that first paper I had was, we're all science communicators here, so the idea is to explain this in a way that non-experts can understand, and we'll just, I'll just go on record and saying, I got no idea what that means either, right? Like, I mean, maybe vaguely, but when you talk about modeling, and then when you talk about the different types of cooperation, like, what does it mean when you say you're modeling? You know, like, what does that look like, or what's the software you're using? And then how does that approach then help us understand cooperation in a circumstance like this, where obviously there are so many variables at play. Very big picture, just in terms of, you know, what the modeling is. I use agent-based modeling and I um, prefer a platform called NetLogo, which is a fairly accessible, um, very well-supported platform. And it's agent-based, which means that when you're programming, you're essentially giving um, the computer rules that the individuals in the model should follow. So you're, you don't have to sort of put in equations that specify all of the population dynamics. You can basically say, you know, all right, you know, individual one do this. And if individual two does that, then you do this. If individual two does this, you do that. You know, so you're, you're basically coding the individual level behaviors and responses. Mm -hmm. And that allows, I think, a, a really nice platform for modeling cooperation because the decision rules that we're interested in looking at are things that individuals are doing, right? They're taking in information and then responding and using that. So, so I really, I really like using that platform. The question of, you know, well, how does that connect then to the real world? Well, for me, at least the, you know, big toolbox that we've built with the Human Generosity Project you know, it has these different methods in it because some are more appropriate for certain aspects of these questions. And so the computational modeling is, is really good for looking at, you know, well, what's the evolutionary viability of these strategies, right? Because we can look at the payoffs, we can run it over, you know, um, 100 years in two seconds, right? So, um, so you can look at the, these much broader scale issues in terms of the, the viability of these strategies with the computational modeling. With the, the field work, you really get a sense of, you know, how are people behaving with each other in, you know, embedded in their ecology with the, you know, cultural norms, what cultural norms are intersecting with it, right? So it's a very rich 
um, sort of tapestry in which these roles are embedded, but you can see how they are embedded. And the human subjects experiments are, they kind of sit somewhere in between where you're, you're, you're you know, you're dealing with real people, um, but you control a little bit more what options you give them, what environment they're in, right? Because we have them playing a game and then making specific decisions. So, so all of these different methods have different strengths. And I think right now where we are with the pandemic that really the ideal thing would be to have, you know, some extremely rich, uh, you know, ethnography type field work. But the fact is, there are so many different communities that are responding so differently to what is going on now, which I mean, maybe when we look back at this historically, that will be the most striking thing about this time is just how differently different groups are experiencing it not just perceiving it but actually experiencing it differently because you know in different regions you know some regions are being affected more than others right and and that that means that people's experience is is really different so so we're kind of trying to approach it from this perspective of well let's at least get a sort of broad assessment of how these variables are changing, you know, coming at it from this, you know, the human subjects angle in terms of our method to start. But our hope is that in the medium term and long term, we can do work that will be able to capture that diversity of responses a little bit more and and understand, you know, how it is embedded in these, you know, different communities. So um, so, so that, you know, maybe we can wrap our heads around a little bit more why it is that um, it's become, you know, there's so many decisive, you know, decisive issues in terms of, you know, dividing people around the responses to the pandemic. Lee, do you have any thoughts you want to add about the pandemic and modeling it and trying That's to understand a, that behavior? It's challenging because it's an unusual circumstance in which the most cooperative thing you can do is stay away from other people. And that's not usually how cooperation works. <laughs> usually it involves contact. At least, at least proximity. And so some of the, some of the pushback against uh, social distancing, I think, may come from that place, sort of mm-hmm. an evolved psychology, sort of a place where this feels wrong to us, you know, to, to not have yeah. regular and sustained contact with other people. And I think the opening up that's happening right now, um, I don't know whether your, your listeners will know exactly when we recorded this, but the, a lot of places are opening up, not mm-hmm. where I am, in New Jersey, but a lot of places are. And I get the impression that it's not because there's really good scientific evidence that it's the right thing to do, but because people are just sick of it. It's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's, it's rubbed against their evolved psychology for so long. We have so many questions, but I think I can segue with that because one of the reasons a lot of the opening up is happening, at least here in Alabama, and I, I imagine it's similar in other states, is because of the debt that's being accrued by yes. both the state and, and individuals. And yeah. The PLOS One paper that you guys published last year, you, you talk about the difference between need-based and debt-based right. cooperation. And I, and I wonder uh, what sort of the, some of the implications are for that. That, that just seems so salient yeah. and so resonant for me. Yeah, so um, the, the, there was the PLOS One paper, which was an experiment uh, where we sat people down. It's actually very similar to the display at the Exploratorium that Athena talked about because at the display, you sit down with two to four other people and you pretend to be a Maasai and you have a 
computer screen in front of you that tells you how many cows you have and how they grow and how they get hit by drought or disease. And then you can give cows to other people. So in the experiment that was written up in PLOS One, it was a two-person simulation like that uh, where they're looking at computer screens and they have livestock that resources. Uh, I don't think we actually called them livestock. And they, they grow and they shrink and they get hit by shocks and then they can ask for help or, and give help or not give help as they see fit. And uh, we also have an agent-based model that uh, essentially the same thing. So what we found, let me, let me talk about the agent-based model findings, actually, I'm going to turn it in that direction, is that those who follow the agents that follow a need-based transfer rule in a volatile environment. So this is an environment where, yes, your livestock grow from year to year, as livestock do. Uh, the herds grow, they, they reproduce, but you get hit occasionally, unpredictably, by shocks of various sizes. And then that gives you a reason, because if you, if you, both in the game and in the simulation, if you fall below a certain threshold for more than two rounds, you're out. Meaning that in the real world, what that would mean is you would have to find some other way to make a living. Uh, you would become a hunter-gatherer, you'd become a farmer, something like that, but you'd be in bad shape. In the simulation, in the agent-based model, the agents who follow a need-based transfer rule where they just say, okay, the, the OSIP rule, right? I'm going to ask if I'm in need, if I'm below the threshold. And if I'm asked for help and I'm above the threshold, I'll give what I can. But I'm not going to take myself below the threshold. Those agents last longer than the agents who follow a debt-based strategy where they expect to get repaid. And if they give uh, some money, it's essentially a loan or resources rather. And... If they don't get repaid within a certain number of rounds, I think we set it at five rounds, they cut off the relationship. Uh, the way that manifested in the in the game where for real people is they made their own decisions about what to do. But we gave some of them a, a, a priming, a framing that was all about the OSITWA system. And those folks engaged in more need-based transfer and less uh, account-keeping sort of behaviors. They were more likely to give uh, repeatedly to the, the individual in need. If they're, if they're the person they were playing with happened to be in need repeatedly and happened to ask repeatedly for help, the ones that had read about the OSITWA system were more likely to go ahead and give. Mm -hmm. The ones that had not done so were more likely to hold back and follow more of a debt-based strategy. And, and the, the reason why the debt-based strategy doesn't work as well is pretty straightforward. If you cut off a relationship with somebody, then they're not there to help you. Mm. Uh, you, it's better off just to keep them going. Even if it's, even if it's costly round after round, as long as you're maintaining your herds, you're doing okay. It's better to get, give something to that person as you can, keep them going because you can't predict the next round. The next round you might be hit by a shock, uh, just as in real life, a past, beside pastoralists and other folks can be hit by drought, can be hit by disease. It's unpredictable. Best to keep these relationships going and maintain those other people so that they're there for you. It's like an insurance policy. It's like, you don't, um, when you get an insurance policy, you get it for these things that are unpredictable, right? And you do it because the future is unpredictable and you're prudent, but you don't want your money back necessarily, right? You don't want State Farm or Geico to give you your money back because it, the only reason they're ever going to give you your money back is if something bad happens to you. Right, right. And so you really hope that you're the lucky person who goes through their entire life never having to file a claim for anything because you've been so lucky and, mm. you know, safe driver and good health and so on. But it's unpredictable. So you go ahead and you get the policy and you pay your premiums, but you hope that that's a complete waste of money. So similarly, in, an, in a need-based transfer risk pooling system like OSITWA or the games we've set up at the Exploratorium or in the experiments, you really want to just keep that other guy going. You don't, we don't want to get repaid. You don't want to hold them to that, to that requirement that they must repay you. Because if they don't repay you, that means you got to end the relationship and then they're not there for you. So the only, and the only reason you would get repaid in a need-based transfer system is if you're in bad shape. In which case, yeah, you want help. 
So is there a lesson there for our, our contemporary current situation? situation? Yeah, I think this is a great moment for need-based transfers. Help help those in need. Um, and, and that may be in need because they're sick or it may be in need because of the economy. Yeah. Uh, the economy's yeah. down the tubes. So yeah, this is a moment when need-based transfers by those who are capable of giving them, uh, which is to say people, say like us, who have jobs that are, are continuing to provide paychecks, despite the current situation um, and other folks who have resources and institutions that have resources to step up and keep the thing going because we got to get through this and get to the other side of it so we can all recover and carry on with our lives the way we want to. Speaking of which, I need to hand off the questioning to Kara. She's dying to ask. (laughs) Yeah, no. So we are short on time. So this is unfortunately not going to get the time it truly deserves. And perhaps Athena, we can definitely have you back on the show. So I was first introduced to you as a scholar from uh, a 2015 paper, the Cancer Across Life Forms paper, Mm -hmm. which is just, it's a visually gorgeous paper. Uh, And it's one that I assigned to my students. And when I learned that you had a book coming out, which is now officially out, I was beyond excited. Uh, So first, tell us about your book, which is called The Cheating Cell, and then we'll have a couple of short follow-up questions to kind of wrap everything up. Yeah, well, thank you for the the kind words about the paper. Um, You know, for me, the whole process of looking at cancer and looking at cancer across life has really been a visual process. So I I became really obsessed with um, crested cacti um, (laughs) more than a decade ago when I, when I discovered them, you know, these um, crested cacti are um, these amazing forms um, where, where you get almost like a, something that looks like a crown Sometimes, like on the saguaro cacti, um, you can get these brain-like cacti. So all of these like amazing sculptural cacti, many of them are actually the result of mutations in the, the meristem, which is basically the plant's version of stem cells. Mm. Um, so you get this mutation in the meristem that leads to these amazing growth patterns um, that are really, you know, they're dysregulated growth. There's, it's too much cell division. It is definitely a cancer-like phenomenon. Um, you know, whether you want to call it or cancer, it might be, a, call it cancer or not. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, personal preference, but I do think of them as basically the plant version of cancer. Yeah, so I wrote this book, The Cheating Cell, to talk about how cancer is fundamentally a problem of cellular cheating inside multicellular bodies. So one way of thinking about ourselves is that we are a unbelievably huge collection of cooperating cells, right? We're made of 30 trillion cells that every millisecond are cooperating and coordinating with each other so that we can be viable human beings, which is just mind blowing. Like if Mm -hmm. you stop to really think about it, it's like, wait, what, (laughs) you know, it it just, it's impossible to comprehend really the scale of the cooperation that's going on. Um, And the fact is, you know, evolution has selected for us at the organism level to have that extremely high level of cellular cooperation because um, that is, you know, we, we reproduce at the organism level, right? So, um, so all of those systems for creating that cooperation and then for enforcing that cooperation, we can think of in this context of cancer and cancer suppression, because, you know, basically in the transition from unicellularity to multicellularity, you had all of this cooperation come on the scene, but that also opened up the possibility for cellular cheating, for cells that were proliferating too much, using up too many resources, et cetera, um, to out-compete the cells that were sort of 
cooperating and behaving better, right? So, um, so really, selection for cancer suppression started, you know, as early as you can imagine in the transition to multicellularity. It was it needed to be there in order for multicellularity to really be viable. And so, um, so I really think about cancer in this much broader context of cooperation theory, cancer as a cellular cheater in our um, cooperative multicellular bodies. And um, in my book, I, I kind of take a tour of you know, how cancer manifests across the tree of life in different species, how it manifests from womb to tomb. So you know what it looks like early versus late, um, how different trade-offs can play a role in cancer susceptibility. And then ultimately, you know, how can we use an evolutionary understanding of cancer to prevent it better and to to treat it better? So so that's the that's the book in a nutshell. Yeah, I'm super excited. Your publisher sent us some copies, so I, I cannot wait to get my hands on it. Uh, and thank you. I assign that paper to my students when we talk about evolutionary medicine. Uh, one, they groan about how long it is, but I'm like, no, it's filled with beautiful like models and imagery. <laughs> like, how could you say it's too long and there's not enough? Uh, so yeah, thank you. I can't wait to dig in and we should definitely have you back on the show at some point to talk about that and your podcast as well. I would love to. How's that going? Oh, I love your so website much. for that. Thank you. It's so much fun. Um, you guys were just talking about at the beginning, the um, the the interview I did with Lee, um, which was so much fun. Um, I I love just having the chance to talk about um, kind of some of the stories behind how people got to work on the things that they work on, um, and and really kind of digging into some of the um, philosophical, ethical issues um and and kind of you know why are we doing science in the first place um so so for me you know zombified is this kind of framework that allows us you know allows me and and my co-host dave to to really look at these questions and issues about you know who are we what influences us are we being hijacked by things that aren't us um mm -hmm. it's a you know it's a topic that spans from science to um, you know, all, really any other aspect of like inquiry about human nature, right? It's, it's, a, a, it's a, a great um, frame and uh, it also allows us to make lots of jokes about zombies and stuff. So. <laughs> well, um, you, you should again, oh, like excellent visuals. Yeah. Like between sure. that paper and the website, like if, if you do the design work, amazing. Whoever, if it's somebody else, I just, I want them like in my brain. Yeah, it's not, it's not me. I, um, I, I, I'm very, very picky though about um, graphic design and visuals and all of that, but um, I mostly um, just hijack other people's brains to do that, so. <laughs> that should be a say, podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, you should interview my wife. We have a small white toothless blind chihuahua that harnesses her brain and forces like seems to be in control of all of our activities around here. So the, the puppy apocalypse around there. Yeah, yeah. We go for our usual evening stroll, but somehow the dog, instead of being walked, is being carried like a little ham under her arm, and I feel like it's like some symbiont controlling controlling us. Yeah. So. There's a there's a zombified episode about that. There we go. Because uh, there's that thing with cats. It's like toxoplasmosis, toxoplasmosis where cats are like mm -hmm. totally controlling our brains. And I'm wondering if dogs have a similar. Uh, I think they just do it by being very cute. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how so my dog yeah. does it anyway. That's their yeah, co-evolutionary so trick, right? <laughs> so check out the puppy apocalypse. It's actually the very first episode yep. of Zombified, the puppy apocalypse, and um, one of the first episodes in season three, which is not yet out, we're producing it right now, is um, the Tox apocalypse, which is about Toxoplasma and cats. So. So yeah, whether you're a cat person or a dog person, um, you have no control over your own mind, basically. Yeah, you'll have to listen to find out. So, <laughs> well, so people can learn more about your work through Zombified. What are other ways they can learn about the Human Generosity Project and other fun irons that you might have in the fire? So I have a website about my work and my lab's work, AthenaActipus.org, and there's ActipusLab.org. Human Generosity Project is humangenerosity.org. Lee, do you have other sites that you... Oh, I have a departmental website that's very boring. <laughs> no, don't look at that. Um, At least you I, keep, I, keep, I keep meaning to do a better job with websites. I'm not good at it. Are you all on the lookout for grad students or postdocs sure. or anything like that? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, we're hope. Well, we're, the postdoc thing is contingent upon funding, of course, mm-hmm. but we're hoping and we're trying all the time. But yeah, graduate students, absolutely. I think Athena and I both are on the lookout for good graduate students. Again, funding can be an issue, as Chris knows from his own experience. That's absolutely true. But it's funny that uh, I think um, there are three or four people who are now involved in the Human Generosity Project in one way or another who actually had a, some uh, experience similar to what Chris had of, mm. of wanting to come to Rutgers and work with me at some point in the past, but there was no money. So they got their credentials elsewhere and so on. Yeah. We made it to the other side. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you both for taking the time out to talk with us today. I told you it would run long and yet we could have done another hour. So thank you. At least. Yes. Thank you both so much for taking the time. I know things are busy. Awesome. It's been fun. Thanks a lot.